You're now experiencing data with Brian O'Neill. Experiencing data explores how product managers, analytics leaders, data scientists, and executives are looking at design and user experience as a way to make their custom enterprise data products and analytics applications more useful, usable, and valuable. And now, here's your host, the founder and principal of Designing for Analytics, Brian O'Neill. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to Experiencing Data. This is Brian T. O'Neill, and today I have Chenda Bunkasem on the line, an AI research scientist in question, right? You're not quite <laughs> sure. Is that, what, is that what I just heard? <laughs> yeah, there's debate within the scientific community about titles. So, you know, this, you always have to be skeptical. Exactly. So maybe we could jump into whether or not you're a scientist and what the heck you're doing with machine learning and AI. I saw Chenda on a webinar that was about ethics in this area. And as listeners to the show will know, I tend to think about ethics as kind of human-centered design at scale when we're kind of looking beyond uh, just the end user or our immediate stakeholders. And we're kind of looking to the outer circles of, of how the technology affects other people. So Chenda, tell us a little bit about you, your, your background, whether or not you think you're a scientist and, and what you're doing these days. Yeah, yeah. So I've been conducting machine learning, artificial intelligence research for quite some time now. I'd say about three years. Happened to accidentally write my computer science dissertation on AI with just intention to make a really cool video game script, which is awesome. And it led me into conducting machine learning research on Google Stadia project, which is a cloud-based gaming platform. And then eventually in an AI startup at the World Trade Center, focusing on simulations and synthetic data, which I'll go more into later on. So all of this has just kind of accumulated to what I'm working on now, which is using a lot of these applied strategies for data-driven ethics and data-driven algorithms with very many different applications. Tell me about quantitative ethics. I think that's that's what I first wrote down when I was like thinking about talking to you and having you come on the show. So can you dig into to what this is? And, and I'm also curious to see how you might relate this to your early user experience work that you did as well. We talk a lot about qualitative research when we do uh, user experience design. So I'm curious about these two things, quantitative ethics and research there, and then also the qualitative piece. Can you, can you talk about that a little bit? Right. So... A lot of the times, especially with regards to ethics uh, and data, there's often an approach that's very, very abstract. It's, it's qualitative, as you said before. And while I was on that panel at Hypergiant, I spoke about using quantitative methods to come up with better decisions for how we ethically design systems. And you know, it's funny because in a way, you're outputting very data-driven decisions with these systems, and it would only make sense intuitively that you'd make data-driven decisions in how they're designed, and so this was the seed for how I started to think about more ethical artificial intelligence research in both the UX sense and in a more deeper technical sense. So what's different about your approach or how do you go about doing it ethically versus not? Like walk us through what the process of doing a project or working on a product or models, et cetera, et cetera. How do you approach the, the ethics piece here? So there are a couple of ways we do this. One of them is to definitely align any sort of research and development along a scale that we call a technology readiness level. Um, NASA actually uses it. But what's interesting is that only recently has there risen a what we call a TRL level, technology readiness level, label for machine learning systems. And so there's, there's a lot of space for people to come in and add pieces where it might be better to make a decision on TRL 7 versus 9 and design a system that 
takes use case into account. So TRL stands for technology readiness level and labs such as NASA use it. I'm sure SpaceX uses it as well. And it's the meter for which we as researchers can determine whether or not something in the lab or something within research and development is ready to either be productionized or what stage it's at. And oftentimes it's it's here that these ideas needed to be honed already. They need to be honed and sharpened in a sense where is it is what we're researching ethical. So how does one go about getting a score, for example? Like what's the process of that? And I'm curious, like, is there any involvement with the people that are in the loop that, that are going to use this or be affected by it? Is that is there some type of research activity or something that goes into scoring these things? Right, definitely. So that's a great question. I actually introduced something called the Delphi method during that panel with Hypergiant. And I find it very interesting because there are very many different sort of combinatorial approaches to decision making where you either have a blind vote or you have people contributing with, as we said before, quantitative data. So exactly how an algorithm works, the exact law or, or the exact policy around, let's say, user privacy, right? It's, it's about designing communities and curating discussions with domain experts who understand the inner workings of, of their fields, and then these people coming together to help seed how you would create these systems, let's say, you know, taking use case into account from the get-go. And it's, it's extremely complex. There's The quantitative feature comes from the fact that the method of itself, the Delphi method, isn't just discussion. It's not just debate. What else do you guys go into with that? So what we'll do and it's, it's interesting because I'm actually taking up a research project in 2021 to submit to an AI ethics conference in spring on this topic. And so it's, we're actually still very, very early in its stages. So I'm kind of disclosing or describing how we're starting to form this. But first, we bring domain experts together. And then we, we analyze the use case at hand. And whatever goes in the middle of the meat uh, between that is usually decided through very, very many iterations after meetings and then after going out and doing some sort of user testing or user research, coming back, et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. Can you talk to me about what a test looks like, like a user test or, or that kind of field research looks like? What do you actually do like step by step with somebody? So the first thing is whatever client that we decide to work with, or at least in this sense, the company that is you know, conducting this research, we actually start with their ethical pillars first. So we start with an abstract concept because more often than not, you want to take the inclination you have first on whether or not a use case is this or that from your feelings. And this is where it gets interesting because first you're taking answers on, your, on someone's ethical pillars or a company's ethical pillars based off of their intuition. And then you're finding how that solution can work you know, in, in a more engineering or systems design fashion. Then you have your solution to how you can approach this problem ethically, or at least how the client ethically wants it. And when you go out and do your user testing, you're usually making sure that the way that the, the user is interacting with the product or, or the, the end goal, one, has a human in the loop, which AI researchers talk about very often. It's allowing the user to understand the systems that they're working with. And the other thing is that ensures user privacy. So this human in the loop concept is something I talk about on this show all the time. It's, it's this kind of a foundational element of designing effective uh, you know, decision support applications and things of this nature. So can you give an example of how, like, how would you take feedback from one of these sessions and make a change? Like, 
you know, if we saw, or maybe you've done this before and you can talk about, you know, an adjustment that you might've made to the system based on getting this feedback from the field. So whether it's interpretability or some other, or privacy or something like that, can, do you have any, like an anecdote you could recount to kind of make it concrete? One thing I would definitely add is that the most advanced AI doesn't always have to be implemented. And people, people usually, they skip past this and they're looking for, you know, the best transformer or the most complex neural network. That's not the case. It's about whether or not the product sticks and the product works alongside the user to aid whatever their endeavor is or whatever the purpose of that product is. You know, it could be very minimalist in that sense. Sure, sure. No, I 100% agree with that. So do you have an example where maybe the data science approach, uh, the implementation approach for something changed? You know, perhaps it changed from a more complex model that was more black box and moved to one that was perhaps less accurate, but had some interpretability because the stickiness factor was there. Is that the type of thing that you would hope to get from this kind of research? Or is that information coming too late to be useful? Uh, like, that would be one thing I would think of if I put my, you know, a lot of the audience for this show tend to be uh, software leaders, technology, data leaders, et cetera. And I'm guessing many of them wouldn't want to find out that late in the process that, oh, we have to do all this, you know, rework of the modeling and the engineering because we found out no one will use this if they don't understand, you know, how the system came up with this recommendation or whatever. Can you unpack that a little bit for me, your, your perspective on that? Yeah, really, really good question, actually. So. I described this at the panel as well, but you want to design dynamic systems and especially within machine learning production ready systems, there's a difference between this concept of static systems and dynamic systems because models have to also retrain themselves if they want to optimize, let's say, object recognition or whatever the outcome is for that model. You definitely want there to be a bit of a loop as you were speaking about before, a feedback loop. And this can happen early on in the process because you don't want to wait too long, even, even before it gets to the user to, to see this. And you want systems that have features of automation as well, if we're talking about AI systems. Automation features that allow for, let's say, the tuning of a hyperparameter. So there, there's systems designed like this that will iterate on itself and then be optimal for the user. One of the interesting things for me here in this particular question was more around the feedback loop between whether or not the solution is actually, as you call it, sticking, like, is the product going to stick and get used for the desired use case? You know, is this something where you feel like you have to go through the process of actually creating that the full automation, you have to pick a model and push that out before you can get that feedback? Or is it possible? And part of the reason I'm asking you this is because I know that, you know, it sounds like you had some work at BitChat, you did some user experience research, I'm kind of very curious about this area of prototyping and figuring out how fast can we learn something about what's what the problem space is, what is needed prior to doing too much implementation work that we don't want to rewind or that the business doesn't necessarily want to rewind and throw out. Do you think it's possible to get informed about which models and which technology approaches we may want to use with machine learning earlier? Or do we have to get into some kind of working prototype before we can establish that? That's a really, really good question. The first thing I would lead with my answer on that is the, the more interpretability, the better off uh, you always are. Mm -hmm. If there is a definitive method right now to, to determine whether or not you should, you know, or shouldn't prototype a specific type of model, I'd be very curious to explore, but the higher interpretability, the better. And the more data is always better. Always. I, I mean, I guess I can think of places where 
you may not care about like how a low risk scenario, a recommender or something like that, like exactly knowing how. So I can see I can see people playing the other side of that argument. I mean, I would generally I would generally agree with you that it feels like if the human in the loop is is a heavy factor in whether or not the solution is going to be adopted and used, then the right amount of control from their perspective is really important, the right amount of transparency, et cetera. So do you think it's possible to tease that out early in the in the technology building part? Or do you just play it safe and say, you know what, I'm not going to go, I'm, we're not going to use any of these techniques. It's just more of a gut read, like this will not work. We have enough gut read on the situation from our customers to know that a black box implementation is going to be a showstopper, so to speak. So you usually want to know, you don't want to go with intuition in this sense. As I said before, when there's more interpretability, it's easier to determine those things, you know, especially with regards to that human in the loop feature. Mm -hmm. And as we were talking about before, you know, if you have more data to play around with, that's more data you split into either training, testing, validation phases with your machine learning, right? And, you know, you can switch that data out. You can also design systems solely for the sorting and the rearranging of the data required to make the best model as well. And these are all preemptive kind of systems design steps that, that one can take. Mm -hmm. So it sounds like you're at a, a new startup, correct? You're, you're working at a tech startup building a, some kind of software SaaS or some kind of software product. Is that correct? Yeah, definitely. Cool. So I, I definitely want to hear about that. I'm curious, how involved are you in that kind of design phase, so to speak, the product itself, the interfacing with customers? Like, do you work tightly with the product management and your product designers? Or are you saying a step away from that? Like, what's that relationship like? And, and how do you guys work it? So it's really interesting at this company, Undock, I work very, very closely, actually, with, with the product teams and the marketing teams, because you know, machine learning for product management is, is very, very particular. And it's very, very interesting because as we were kind of saying before, this preemptive systems design needs to be noted very, very early on from the get-go. And, you know, how a person is experiencing the product is very, very relative to what models are chosen and how the models are architected. How do you inform those technology choices? So I really like this question because the user journey, right, um, or if you want to refer to it as the user experience, is is kind of one of the the fewer actually pieces of especially with undock that actually has to very very closely align with not just the model architecture but the data generation and the data collection we're actually generating data as well synthetic data for a lot of this model training as well and the reason is because the user experience or or the product experience that we would like the users to feel needs to be seamless you know, and so if you're working in very, very close loop with people who are designing the user journey and designing how the product looks, you have a better idea of what data needs to be collected where and when to give the person that experience, especially with regards to machine learning. Mm -hmm. Was there a particular like anecdote or something you might recount from your, your journey so far with Undock where you're like, I'm glad I heard this now <laughs> or something along those lines or, you know, wow, this was this was really informative to my work or prevents us going down the wrong path. Is there any, anything like that that came up so far? You know, actually, it's funny, kind of. So Undock has this, we have this phrase that we use, which is time travel, right? We are an AI-powered smart scheduling application that is sort of all-encompassing with being able to automatically detect whether or not you are free during a certain time frame and free with the rest of your coworkers as well. It really, really is kind of revolutionizing how you think about scheduling, especially with regards to remote work, because all of your colleagues are now 
in different time zones. And there are so many pieces to determining whether or not it, it's almost like having a, an EA within your laptop. You know, it's almost as if every individual person has one of those as well. And the different pieces with a user journey like that, you've got to think to yourself that you, you, you're, you're getting smart suggestions all the time. And the data that has to be collected and aggregated for the optimal experience that is seamless within how you communicate with your, with your coworkers and how you're communicating with the application is it's quite extensive, actually. It's very complex. Tell me about this undock. What, what I'm picturing here is it's, it's, it's scheduling facilitation. I, I use Calendly extensively in my own work, so I'm always curious about reducing time spent on this kind of stuff. So how is it different than, you know, just booking a room and your people, especially if this is like, you know, inside the corporate walls, right, where everyone's on exchange or whatever, and you know when everyone's available, et cetera. Is this intended for like cross company where you don't have that visibility into people's schedules? Is that the difference or like, how does it, how does it work? That's actually a good question. Um, you don't actually have complete visibility into your coworkers schedules, which is quite different from how you might see Google calendar, but that's, what's nice about it because the more personal features of what your schedule looks like and how you're planning your days is actually occluded. Well, you know, you can still really, really easily and seamlessly figure out when's the best time to meet and when's the best time to talk. You can schedule meetings in person. You can schedule meetings face-to-face -face as well. And there's a feature to it that actually makes it kind of social. You have a profile. You can state whether or not you're online. And it's really blending a lot of features from, uh, there's an application called Discord, which a lot of remote workers are using these days, and Calendly, Slack, to, as I said before, we have this thing where we're talking about time travel or controlling time, where you don't actually have to know all the details to get the best outcome. Sure, sure. So what do you want to change about how we develop machine learning driven products and, and services? Is there even a problem? I guess is a good question. I, I don't think there's a problem per se. I think we're very clear now that there's places where machine learning should be used and places where it doesn't necessarily have to be. You know, there's obviously that very stark difference between machine learning engineering, which is really software engineering using elements of machine learning. Mm -hmm. and machine learning research and development, which is massively different. It has a place in science that is very abstract. It's all encompassing. You can use machine learning research in biology. You can use machine learning research in physics. The list goes on and on and on. So it's broad, but it's not. And it's, it's applied in engineering, but it's also applied in research. And it's very all encompassing. So what I'm really curious to see is just how it changes in the years to come. But I don't think there's anything that should be changed specifically. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a lot of solutions that end up not, I use solutions in quotes, there's a lot of projects that get created that end up not getting used at all. I'm not sure the, the large majority of people are necessarily thinking about the last mile and kind of that, as you call it, the stickiness of the product or the solution or whatever it's going to be and kind of working backwards from that. And I'm just curious, do you think something needs to change there to get a higher success rate here? And I'm, I'm speaking specifically about not the technical blockers, not like, you know, the data sets are too small or we can't train the model or, you know, the accuracy is slightly too low, you know, for various technical reasons and whatnot. More the human piece, right? Like it doesn't solve a problem that exists or it solves it in the wrong way or it's too complicated or hard to use. More of these kind of last mile user experience problems. Do you agree that that's a challenge right now? And, and if so, is there something that could be done differently? I, I do agree that it's a challenge. Um, I'm sure that you've heard many people are saying machine learning is, is no place to move fast and break things. And 
it's true. There's this sort of race to innovate. And the question is always for why yeah. <laughs> and uh, throw and, everything, machine learning at everything. <laughs> yes. Oh, I know. <laughs> and then the, the question is for why and, and who's affected, you know, of course there's facial recognition. And I think it's a perfect example because what facial recognition really is without it being the product that it is, is glorified computer graphics, right? AI aided machine learning aided computer graphics that is advanced enough to, you know, pick up the pixels and in, what a camera can see and make meaning out of that, you know? Mm. Now that's facial recognition. So <laughs> you really have to ask yourself, why is it necessary and who is it helping? Mm -hmm. Or who's it not helping? Yeah. Do you have concerns then when you're, when you're in the middle of a project or, you know, maybe you're, you're working on a feature or some aspect of Undock? I mean, maybe Undock's a good example of this, like the question of, should we do this and should we be using these advanced analytical techniques in this particular area? Should we be looking at someone's whatever their online offline status or whatever it may be, even if you've technically thrown up the dialogue that says you're yes, click here to give permission to do this thing. There's also the question of does the person really understand what they're handing over in terms of their personal information and how it's being used? I think there's the comprehension piece is almost separate from the did we get permission and it feels good to just say, well, they checked the box. And at some point there's personal responsibility, but some of this stuff is pretty technical. So it's an interesting point. Most people don't really know what they're giving to the products that they're using, actually. And it's it's very funny because there's this quote that circulates around tech Twitter, which is if you're not paying for the product, then you you are that the product. And that's more than often, yeah. you know, with social media, blah, 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 because it's true. I don't think it should actually be a part. Actually, no, this is quite an interesting point. I don't think it should actually be a part of their user journey and every single individual product they're using, I think there should be a centralized place where people are well aware of like how they interact with products generally in a more, in a more macro perspective. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I just talked to a an interesting uh, MIT sandbox startup there, and they're they're actually thinking about kind of this bank analogy where the bank is you have all of your personal data there, and companies can pay you for it. So, you know, here's an offer for, you know, $9.27. Google would like to use your email address and here's how they want to use it. And you can choose whether to disclose it and get paid for it. And I thought I thought it was a very interesting concept of starting to expose, you know, uh, where's my stuff being used? How is it being used now? I mean, how transparent they get about that and whether they just throw up a bunch of legal stuff in front of the offer. I don't know. You know, to me, there's potentially some ethical considerations there as well if you know especially with people that don't have a lot of money that may just see it as free money you know i just click here and i get nine dollars a month from google and i don't know like i didn't have to do anything <laughs> so there's you know I, I still think there's a human effort you know to understand there, there's effort on both sides that's required if you really want to have a long-term strategy of being both ethical but also producing some kind of business value there I don't know, you know, it's it's a complicated uh, question, but I wanted to get your your take on it because I know you you have a heavy uh, ethics consideration in the work that you do. Yeah, yeah, definitely. It's something that I think should really actually be coming from a centralized place mm -hmm. because despite the methods being different, maybe the algorithm being different or the user journey from product to product, the essence is the same and it's that and this this goes into painting a larger picture, but how much of a stronghold especially these larger technologies technology companies have on us, our lives and, and our data. And, you know, to some extent, it shouldn't actually be just every single product creator's job to, to notify users to that extent. I think mm -hmm. we should be taught this, you know? 
Yeah, no, it's a fair, I, I agree. I mean, at some point there is a level of personal accountability and responsibility and it's your choice. It's a free society. I, I totally agree. I think, I don't feel like it's, the scale is not super well balanced at this point, but you know, it's a, it's a complicated, uh, <laughs> it's not a binary it's this way or that way. It's definitely a, some kind of scale there. So I guess we all have to figure out what the right balance is there between customers and, and what, what kind of company do we want to work for and what do we want to do, you know, with, with the work that we do. So jumping to a slightly different topic, just to kind of start to close this out, it's been great to talk to you. And I, I'm curious, do you have any feeling, you know, having worked in, in, in some tech companies and stuff, I'm always interested in kind of the relationship between the technical leaders, the product leaders and the designers and kind of this trio that's at the backbone of many software companies. Is there changes that you'd like to see there about how that relationship works uh, in terms of either people understanding your work or vice versa or whatever? I'm, I'm curious about those relationships. Is there a takeaway from your experience about how you think those teams could be more optimized to work together? I really, really love this question. It's something that I contemplated at my last company mm -hmm. and, and you know, we'll, we'll maneuver differently in this company. But I helped scale my last company from really three to four people to now it's over 100. And seeing how senior leadership communicated with each other, especially representatives from each of these, you know, these different groups, there has to be translators. There has to be people who exist in translational roles. And they're quite difficult to fill because you have to have an understanding of the hows, but you have to be able to explain the whys. Mm -hmm. Is there a special type of person or a role or something where you think that role falls naturally? It's something that I actually think is still being, it's, it's showing itself through in tech companies, whether it's the big five at Google or Facebook or in startups that are, are high growth. It's, oh, we need someone to sit in on this, on this meeting who is a creative technologist. You know what I mean? There are these, these, these names now that get thrown about that aren't actually just senior engineer, et cetera, et cetera, you know, who right, have an right. understanding, yeah, of, of, you know, even sometimes, sometimes the social sciences behind why you would do something within design, you know, mm -hmm. or they have an economics background and understand computational social science and, you know, why micro influencers communicate with each other in this way, you know? Mm -hmm. Cool. Well, I appreciate you sharing uh, your stuff with me. And I, I did have one last question. I was, when I was checking out your, your background stuff, what kind of music are you DJing? Oh, <laughs> um, so <laughs> <laughs> I'm a musician as well. So I was curious to hear what kinds of stuff you're spinning. Oh, that's a good question. So I'm very, very influenced by the electronic music scene in both the UK and Europe. Uh -huh. And I kind of combine that with yeah, some other futuristic sounds as well. So mostly electronic music, but I mean, you know, <laughs> it can range from like new stuff, old stuff, drum and bass, like newer genres. Drum and bass is great. Anything from Brain Feeder. Of course, you have to like throw an Aphex Twin sometimes, but then like <laughs> then you mix it with Travis Scott, you know? Yeah. <laughs> cool. All right. I, have a, I have a soft spot for some drum and bass uh, in my life as well. So it's good, good stuff. <laughs> well, Chenda, it, it's been great to talk to you. And where can people follow you? I know you're, you're pretty active on Twitter. Is that the best place to, to kind of check out your work? Yeah, so Twitter is great. Of course, there's my website. I also have a Substack where I'll be releasing a newsletter. Of course, feel free to follow me on Instagram with anything that's more visual. But I'm Chenda Binkasem everywhere. Awesome. And that's C-H-E-N-D-A bunk, like a bunk bed, B-U-N-K-A-S-E-M, if anyone's just listening and not reading. So Chenda, thanks for coming on Experiencing Data and, and talking to us today. Thank you for having me. Take care.
We hope you enjoyed this episode of Experiencing Data with Brian O'Neill. If you did enjoy it, please consider sharing it with the hashtag Experiencing Data. To get future podcast updates or to subscribe to Brian's mailing list, where he shares his insights on designing valuable enterprise data products and applications, visit designingforanalytics.com slash podcast.